And then last week, before we get into the sermon today, uh, we celebrated Easter. Uh, it was an amazing weekend, Good Friday and Easter. And one of the things I love most about Easter is it doesn't end on that day for us. Uh, one, because Jesus is alive today, amen? Uh, he's still, uh, the, the tomb is still empty today. That's still a truth that we realize that we celebrate today. But also, practically for us, we take an Easter offering. If you were here, you heard a lot about that. But here's what that means is we give all the money that comes in on Easter away uh, directly to another organization. This year, we did that to uh, the International Voice of the Orphan. That's an organization in Uganda that specifically serves 41 orphans with uh, special needs. And so we explained that to you guys. We showed you a video of that. A family in our church, the Saunders, amazing family, helps lead that ministry and organization in Uganda. They're legit. It's amazing, amazing work. And so we wanted to give everything that came in on Easter to that work. Now, we've done this twice before as a church. We're only three and a half years old, but I love that we've already done this twice. This was our third time to do this. And I kind of know what to expect. I kind of know the amount, the total that's going to come in on a Sunday like that because I've seen it before a couple times. But God chose to adjust my expectations, to blow up my expectations because the number that we receive that I want to share with you is just amazing for our church. The total we received for the Easter offering last week was $6,418.43. I get a little emotional when I read that. I got emotional when I saw the text from our accountant, uh, just because a three-and-a-half-year-old church, uh, to give $6,400 plus to an organization you learned about. Some of you that day, we announced it the week before, but you don't listen to that. You don't, li- you don't read the emails. And you just saw that day there's a need, and we want to give to that. We say at our church, uh, love moves. You see it on tote bags. You see it on T-shirts. And what I love about that Sunday is it's a way for us not just to say that, but to demonstrate that in a loud way, not just to us and here, but to Uganda, to our city, to the new people that came on Easter that think the church just wants my money. And we were able to say, no, we're going to give it all away. And you guys crushed it. So thank you. If you participated in this, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for putting on display, for living out what we put on the website. Love moves. It moves our money. We give of our treasure every week because there's a greater treasure in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so that's what you guys got to be a part of. Uh, It's an amazing, amazing thing to celebrate. And so just thank you. Thank you for doing that. It's a huge, huge deal. Well, let's dive in. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Molly did a good job. Get your Bibles out. Get your phone out. uh, Get God's word in front of you. Uh, The power that comes from today is not in my words, but God's word. And so look along with us in that uh, as we look at Colossians 1, 21 through 23. I I know all of us uh, probably have had the feeling at some point in life uh, of an awkwardness that comes with conflict. Uh, Maybe with your spouse, maybe with a friend. There's a division that has taken place, and there's a conflict. And because of that conflict, maybe you're a little bit more passive. You walk away now when you see that person. Maybe you're a little bit more confrontational. You, You walk up to that person when you see that person. And the confrontation is direct and it's upfront and it's a little awkward and maybe some of you are in a conflict like that right now. Maybe you're losing sleep over that conflict. Maybe the conflict is with somebody in this room. And as I say this, it makes it more awkward, right? 
Now, all of us know that feeling, but all of us also know the feeling of working out those differences, of resolving that conflict, of those times where you have an honest conversation with somebody, you apologize, you repent, you forgive, you don't defend, you don't deflect, because that doesn't resolve conflict, but you repent, you forgive, and you resolve the conflict, and everything gets worked out. And if you're more introverted, you just give a silent fist bump. If you're more extroverted, you give a big bear hug, right? You laugh it out, you cry it out. And all of us have experienced that as well. And what we're going to look at this morning, what Molly just read, is a picture of both. Those are both sides of the same coin that that we have a conflict. But it's not with another person, it's with God Almighty. We have a division, a separation with God. That's one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin is God has done something about that, and he has made everything right. And he has brought us close. And we're friends of God, not enemies of God now because of the cross of Christ. And so we're going to look at both sides of that coin. We're going to look at the reason for reconciliation this morning. And then we're going to look at the result of reconciliation. So let's do that together. Verse 21, it says, and you, that's you, that's me who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Uh, Last week was Easter, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, was the passage, and it described Jesus Christ. Uh, If you were here, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is preeminent. That means he's first, he's best. He has priority and authority over all of the universe and over all of your life. It's an amazing passage. It's one of my favorite in the Bible. Jesus is the fullness of God. He's not a good teacher. He's not a man. He's the eternal God-man. He is invincible. He is over everything. He is the creator of all things. He holds the universe in his hand, it says. One of the clearest passages in all of the Bible that describes Jesus. This is part two. Verse 21 through 23 is part two where it describes not Jesus but us. And it describes our position and our behavior. That our position, if you look at the text, says we were once alienated. Alienated. The idea is that we were created in God's image under his rule and reign that was perfect. And we're supposed to submit to him, obey him. But instead of doing that, we disobey God. But we don't just disobey God and stay under his rule and reign. We disobey God and say, hey, we want to go under a different rule and reign. And it's called the rule and reign of Tim. It's called the rule and reign of self. So we, we go into God's kingdom. He grants us that as his image bearers. We submit to him, but through sin, we say, no, I want to submit to myself. I want to control things. I want to be God. And so we're alienated. Literally, it means a transfer of ownership from here to here. That's our position. That's how this passage describes us. And that position affects our behavior. Because we're alienated, we're hostile in our mind, we're evil in our deeds, and so this affects our our thinking and our living, and these are some pretty graphic words, hostile, evil. And what you need to know, if you hear that and you think, I don't know if I'm hostile, you probably think that because of our culture, because our culture does not describe us this way. Our culture describes us different. I just think about Luke Bryan, the great country music theologian. He says this about you. He says this about me. I believe most people are good. And mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. That's what our culture tells you. 
right? Not in that exact words. That's Luke Bryan's special rendition. But that's what our culture tells us is we're all basically good. God's basically good. We're all just trying to get along. And at one point, everything will work out. Now, here's the problem with that is when catastrophes happen, when tragedy happens, and you're watching the news, and you've probably done this because it happens a lot, they bring psychologists on. Can you, can you just explain what, what was in that guy's mind who shot up that school? What would a person go through in their, their nature and their nurture to bring that about? And there's always, there's always some sort of explanation. Well, see, he didn't really talk to anybody. He was isolated. Parents didn't love him. They didn't affirm him. But at some point, usually when I watch these things, the psychologist has to say, other than that, there's some stuff we just can't explain. And what they don't go on to say is what Paul says, that we're hostile, we're evil, that we are alienated in our position. Therefore, it affects our behavior. It affects our thinking and our living this is the description of us. Part one was Jesus' description. This is part two in our description. The Bible calls us dead in places. The Bible calls us enemies of God, hostile. And again, many of us are thinking, maybe some people in prison, maybe some of those people on the news, but not me. I'm not hostile towards God. That's not, that's not what I see in my life. I see that in other people's lives. They're the people who shout. They hold up signs. They persecute churches. Those are the hostile people. That's not me. What I would say, maybe this will help you, is my wife and I really like to watch like uh, old school, like 24, Jack Bauer. Any of you guys? Yeah. Uh, new school, Homeland. Okay, just us. All right. It's totally fine. Um, I don't endorse either one of those shows, so don't go off and watch that and say, Pastor Sims, that was okay. No. I like shows like that that talk about our government, president, the conspiracies, and CIA, all that stuff. We really like that stuff. And, and the thing I see, we just saw it in an episode recently, was there's some rumblings going on about Russia in this show. And it's all internet war, and it's all this, this, these things that are taking place subversive and, and not overt. And, and there's all these little rumblings, and it's always going on, right? There's always somebody trying to take out the president. And what they will say is with these little rumblings and this internet war, that's a hostile act against the president. That's not just a crime. It's not just an incident. That's a hostile act against the president. You know why? Because the magnitude of an offense is directly related to the magnitude of an office. Here's what I mean by that. If you were to come to my house, don't do this, please. But if you were to come to my house and vandalize my house, even if it was just really small on the corner of the house, just so you know, I would call the cops. I would call the cops and they would call it what? A crime? Maybe an incident? Like parishioner vandalizes pastor's house. What an incident. Don't do that, right? They maybe call it foolishness. Maybe it was some of our kids did it as a joke. I still call the cops. But they would call it an incident, a crime, or foolishness. Now, you vandalize the White House? It's a different story, right? Uh, that's not foolishness. That's a hostile act. That could be perceived as an act of terrorism. Why? Because the magnitude of the offense is directly related to the magnitude of the office. Now, going back to Colossians 1, 15 through 20, what does it say about Jesus? By him, for him, through him, all things were created 
that all of creation is God's house. And that when we sin, even the littlest lie, the littlest gossip, just the littlest greed, when we sin against God's creation, we sin against his house. And so it's not just a little incident. It's a separation. It's a condemnation because God is holy and we are sinful. And the magnitude of our offense against the holy and righteous and sovereign God and his office, they're directly related. So hostile? Yeah. Evil? Yes. Not just the people out there. The people in here. That when you lust after another woman, that's God's creation. Created in his image. You're sinning against God's creation. You're sinning against his house. When, when you gossip and you say, well, I just got to speak my mind. I just, I'm a loud person, right? No, no, no. You're sinning against the house of God. The magnitude of the offense directly relates to the magnitude of the office. And so Paul calls it what it is. It's hostile in mind, evil in deeds. This is you. And this is me. Now, that's the bad news. There's good news coming. Amen? The second point is the result of reconciliation. The the good news first comes in a tense. Any English teachers out there? Well, anybody take English in, in school? All right, we can get excited about this. The good news comes from a tense, from grammar, Past tense, you once were this. You once were this. You once were alienated, hostile, evil deeds. You once were. That's not who you are now. That's who you were, past tense. There's good news even in a tense. But the news gets better as we read. The news gets better because we don't accomplish this. Notice the first word in verse 22 is what? He. That's an important pronoun. That's a pronoun that should transform your posture, should transform your person this morning. That, That some of you, the reality is you walk in this morning, especially coming off Easter and that high we had on Easter, there was a lot more people in this room. There was a lot of great things that happened. People got baptized And maybe some of you walked out of here last Sunday and you said, never going to sin again. Attend church every week. Open my Bible every day. Right? And maybe you've gone through cycles of like that in your life. And some of you this morning, I believe, are religiously exhausted. I mean, can we just be honest? How often we try to gain the favor, the access the pleasure of God? How often you've been sitting in a chair just like that and just hoping, God, maybe after I sing a few songs, maybe after I do a few good works, then you'll be more pleased with me. And maybe we don't say that out loud, but we feel that way even this morning. And you need to know the pronoun is not you. It's he. That he is God. God reconciles you. You could never do that. And so there there is some power in a pronoun. God reconciles us, not our religion, not our good works. Amen? That's good news. How does he reconcile us? Look at the text again. He reconciles us in his body of flesh by his death. 
Again, if you're paying attention just to the verbiage there, that's redundant. In his body of flesh. Why say both? Why say body and flesh? Last time I checked, those two are the same things, right? Well, Paul is pointing out this grievous sin, this hostile mind, these evil deeds, that it takes a real body on a real cross, a real flesh, skin that we talked about that was torn on Good Friday from top to bottom, torn in two. Paul is making it clear that God does this and the way he does this is through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not a cute story. It's a real event in history that happened. That's what reconciles us is the cross of Christ. Now, here's what's interesting about this reconciliation. Here's what makes it different than our reconciliation between us is usually the party who is wrong initiates the reconciliation, right? And so if, if I wrong you, most likely I'm going to initiate first. I'm going to come to you first. I'm going to say, hey, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And, and you may say, well, yeah, I forgive you, and we'll, we'll reconcile. But if I wronged you, most likely I'm coming to you first. Here's the difference with God. God never hurt you. You need to know that. God's never wronged you, ever. God loves you. God cares for you. And yet, who initiates? God. Right? The, the party who didn't do anything wrong, the party who was perfect, the party who loves you, the party who cares for you, the party who has a plan for your life, we wrong him, yet he initiates with us. He extends first. What is love? It's that God first loved us. Not that we love him. First John. God first loves. God first extends. God first initiates. God first sends his son Jesus to reconcile us before him. Now, as we talk about salvation there's several concepts of salvation, several aspects of salvation. One of those concepts is forgiveness. The idea, the powerful idea that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been canceled, has been forgiven by Jesus through the cross. Okay? And I think for a lot of us, we've heard that word a lot. We'll say a lot, you know, I'm forgiven. If I confess, I'm, I receive forgiveness. And a lot of us, we can wrap our minds around forgiveness. And so I know, even as I say that today, if you've trusted in Jesus... All of your sins are forgiven. You might say, well, Tim, yeah, I know that. I can kind of wrap my hands around the concept of forgiveness, right? Here's how I think about it with my kids. Um, I know this is going to shock you, but they offend one another. They hurt one another. Uh, I know it shocked me the first time I saw it too, but it happens. And um, what happens when they do that, when they hurt one another, we'll, we'll do the typical thing like, I'm sorry, over here, I forgive you, and they kind of mean mug. I'm sorry, I forgive you, but then they kind of stay far away, don't they? Don't they? Yeah. They don't play together for a little while, right? And so here's what, as parents, we do, as loving parents. We make them hug it out. We say, no, 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 you don't just say, I forgive you, a mean mug from across the way. No, you go over, you wrap your arms around your little brother, or vice versa. 
You wrap your arms around them, we make them hug for 20 seconds. Because by the end of that 20 seconds, it never fails. They're giggling, they're laughing, and then they start playing together again. You you see, here's what I want you to wrap your mind around this morning. Don't miss this this morning, is that when, when God reconciles you through the cross of Christ, he doesn't just not hold things against you from afar. But he doesn't leave a barrier in between you and him and say, hey, you know what? I mean, you did a lot of bad things. You were hostile in mind. You were evil in your deeds. But just stay over there. I forgive you. I'm not going to hold that over your head. But just don't get too close because that could get messy. That's not what God does. No, no, God doesn't just forgive you. God embraces you. He doesn't leave you out in the street and say, hey, I don't hold it against you, but don't come in my house. No, he goes and gets you. He makes a seat at the table for you. You have dinner together. You fellowship with one another. You have a relationship with one another. That is reconciliation. So you are forgiven in Jesus, amen, but you are also embraced in Jesus. That that's the other side of the coin. That's the reconciliation that Jesus invites you into. And as you might imagine, there's some amazing results of this. We see them in the text. Look at it with me. As a result of this reconciliation, we are holy, blameless, above reproach. And again, I know as I say that, not many of us feel that way. Like how many of you this morning, somebody asked you, hey, how are you doing? I'm blameless. Glad you asked. I'm holy, spotless, and clean. How are you doing? Hey, nobody did that this morning. Wow, we don't feel like that. Oh, we know what we did last night. We know what we did last week. We know what we thought about this morning. So we, we don't feel holy, blameless, above reproach, but there's a key phrase I don't want you to miss. Verse 22, look at it. Before him. We're we're wholly blameless above reproach before Jesus. The same Jesus who earlier by him, for him, through him, created all things. All of it is his house. We are hostile towards him. That same Jesus, before that Jesus, we are now holy, blameless, clean, spotless, above reproach. No one can bring an accusation against you. That's what that means. That's how Jesus sees you. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, been reconciled to him, that's how Jesus sees you right now. It's a result of our reconciliation, and it's an amazing one. Now, I wish the passage ended and we could just go home. Verse 22, I would have stopped there. Paul did not. Verse 23, let's look at that. He says, if indeed, ah, Now, Tim, just right where I'm seated, seated, right this morning, God sees me this way, holy, blameless. I'm feeling pretty good. Conditional statement. I don't need that. If indeed, what? Now, I I think there's a lot of confusion around passages like this, around words like this. And so I want to try to bring some clarity in two ways. Here's what I see in what Paul is saying, that he's bringing about evidence and encouragement. He's highlighting evidence and encouragement. The first thing, evidence, when he says this. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
and continue steadfast, faithful. That faith is demonstrated through faithfulness. All throughout the Bible, not just right here. The way we know people have faith, right, those two are synced up together. You look at the book of James. Faith and works, they coincide together. You look at a passage that we all probably know, Ephesians 2, by grace, through faith, you have been saved, not of your works, lest anyone should boast. It's a gift of God. The next couple of verses, but you were created for works in advance that God has prepared for you to walk in, right? You need to see both sides of that. This is a concept throughout all of Scripture that faith is demonstrated through faithfulness. And so if I can help you with this a little bit, it's like when I got married. My wedding day was beautiful. We'd been running. It was amazing. We got dressed up. We were younger. It was an amazing day. The reception, I wish you could have been there. It was amazing. My wife's Indian. We had a full Indian meal. We had, I don't even know if you're going to know what this means, but I'm going to teach you today. We had, for the music in our wedding, was Punjabi Indian music mixed with Eminem. <laughs> it's as glorious as it sounds. Right, we walked in. It was like a club. They had candles lit because the lights had actually went out. And we walked in, and it was just like, like a club. And we were untwisting the light bulbs, right, and putting them back in. That's an Indian dance. Just taught you that today. Try that out later with your wife. I mean, it was a blast. Our reception, our wedding day was phenomenal. But you know how you know that I'm married to my wife? It's not that day. It's not the amazing vows that I said and the, the, the way I, I looked and the way she looked at me, the way we danced to Eminem and Punjabi music. That's not how you know. It's 11 years. 11 years later, how do you know I'm married to my wife? You haven't seen that video, right? How do you know? It's because I, I serve my wife, because I, I love my wife. I sacrifice for my wife. That, that you don't know I'm married to my wife, faithful, loving toward my wife because of that day. You know it because of the last day, that 11 years in, that 40 years in, if God gives us that, that I sacrifice, I show her I love her that faith is demonstrated in faithfulness, that love moves. It's expressed through declaration, through demonstration, through endurance over the course of time. If you're married, that's what marriage is. Now, that's a covenant of marriage. This is a covenant between us and God. It works the same way that, that we see one another, not by a moment we had one day when we walked an aisle, not by a prayer that you repeated, we know we are Christians by our what? Our love. We know we are Christians by our good deeds that we see in one another. That if 11 years later, after that beautiful wedding day, if I wasn't living with my wife, if I wasn't actively serving her, if I wasn't sacrificing for her, you wouldn't know we were in covenant with one another. That the way you know you have faith in God is through your faithfulness to him over the course of a lifetime. And so there is evidence that Paul is getting at of this reconciliation, that it's faithfulness, it's endurance. And so listen, just an honest moment this morning, if you have always thought, well, I'm a Christian because my parents are, or because I recited a prayer at camp, or because I go to church and I do these good things, or I listen to Caleb, that's not what makes you a Christian. 
placing your faith in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, placing your faith in that, committing to follow him all the days of your life. That's what makes you a Christian. And we see that as we love one another, not perfectly, but as we demonstrate God's goodness through our good works. And so Paul is getting it. This is an evidence of reconciliation, but it's not just an evidence. It's an encouragement. How do I know? It's right in the text. Verse 23, look at it with me. It says, don't shift from something. What are we not supposed to shift from? It says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus Christ lived a life a sinless life in your place for your sin, died a death on your behalf, rose again, conquering victory, victoriously, sin, Satan, death, and the grave. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, again, says it like this, by grace through faith you have been saved. It's a gift of God. Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you will finish it to completion. That's the gospel. So Paul says, if indeed, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. And so did Paul, who, by the way, wrote those other texts I just quoted, Ephesians 2, Philippians 1, Paul wrote that. Paul writes this. Did Paul all of a sudden, for the Colossians specifically, think, you know, I'm going to scare these guys. A little too much love, a little too much grace. Let's put some fear in these guys. Did Paul switch from a grace-based salvation to a works-based salvation? Did Paul switch from a relationship to a religion? No. Paul's trying to scare you, but it's not into religion. It's out of religion. That's why he says specifically, don't shift away from this hope in the, the gospel, in the grace that saved you unconditionally. Don't shift from that. That will help you endure. That will help you be faithful. And so what do we do with this? How do, how do we remain faithful? We're going to talk more about that next week, so come back for that. But I would just say this. We all have a story, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, of reconciliation. You have, you have a story of you once were this, now you're this. Your past condition was this, your present reality is this. And you once were alienated, hostile, now you've been reconciled. You all have a story of that, a personal story of what God's done. Last week, we saw some baptisms, and, and our kids that got baptized, they wrote out a little letter of that story. Right? We had a guy come down in the moment. He shared with counselors back there. He trusted in Jesus right on the spot, and he shared his story of, of reconciliation with me after the service. You have a story if you've trusted in Christ. You have been reconciled to God. What's your story? Could you write it out? That's the homework for this week. I want you to go home today, this week, paragraph, a few sentences, a page, and I want you to write out your story of reconciliation. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just chronicled, God, I once was this, but now by your grace I'm this? Here's why you need to do that. Because some of you may get a pen and paper, and maybe you can't think of anything. Maybe you think about a prayer you prayed, an aisle you walked. But if you're honest, you can't really think of your personal story of reconciliation. And that may be God's grace to you in this moment to say, you're not reconciled. But you can be today. You can start your story today. God can start 
your story today. And you can put your trust, your faith, in the personal work of Jesus Christ and be reconciled for the first time. Maybe you sit down and you do have some things to say and you do have some things to write out and you do remember, hey man, when I was in college, when I was in high school, man, I was hostile. When I was married, before I was married, I was hostile, I was evil, I can see that, I can write it out and that's going to be painful. But then you can flip to the other side of the coin and say God's grace invaded my life. His love, his unconditional love, overwhelming love invaded my life and I turned from that sin and hostility And I turned from God in friendship, and he didn't just forgive me, he embraced me. And you could write that out, and you can be assured, affirmed in your reconciliation before God. And so let's let's write that out together this week, today, with your spouse, with a friend. Write that out together and see this beautiful reconciliation take place in our lives. I'm going to invite the band up now. We're going to respond to this truth. We're going to respond in a couple ways. We're going to receive an offering We're going to give generously, just like we did last Sunday, giving our treasure for a greater treasure in Jesus Christ. Then we're going to take communion. We're going to celebrate that we've been reconciled to God. Not because of us. As we take the bread, as we dip it in the juice or the wine, we're celebrating that the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus, completely absorbed the wrath of God, completely displayed the love of God, on our behalf. And so if you know Jesus, we'd invite you to come in a moment and participate in that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for the reconciliation that we have in Jesus. I thank you that you spell it out, that just in three verses, there's so much profound truth of what you have accomplished in the lives of the men and women in this room because of Jesus. I thank you that you do that so we can be assured, so we can be affirmed, so we can write out our story and celebrate and adore you because of our story of reconciliation. God, I pray that in this moment that if we just realize we don't have one, God, that these men and women would stop listening to me, start talking to you and give their life to you and be reconciled for the first time. God, I pray for the men and women that do have that story and and, and can start thinking of ways to write it out, that they would start singing about it, that they would start declaring and celebrating it even as we sing this morning. Collectively, we would rejoice in the great reconciliation provided through Jesus Christ on the cross for us. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.